Welcome to Bridges Across Every Divide, a webinar uh, by Phil Duvall and Jean Krebs. This is a book. It is a workshop, it's a movement, and we thank each of you for participating here with us today in this hour webinar. My name is Ruth Wyrick, and um, I will serve a little bit as your moderator today. I'm going to turn it over to Phil Duvall, whom many of you know, and he, in turn, can introduce his sidekick here today, Gene Krebs. So, Phil, it's yours. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, and thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, yeah, to introduce my sidekick, I hadn't thought of you that way before, Gene. Um, I, I, you should know that Gene is a uh, former representative here in the state of Ohio and uh, well known in our, in our uh, state. When I walk around uh, downtown Columbus, uh, every other person stops him to talk with him. He literally knows, uh, he, he says there's 5,000 people that matter in Ohio and make things happen. And he knows personally, and I think that's true. Uh, he is a well-known talking head on television around here and, uh, and he's a conservative and uh, I'm not. <laughs> and, and the name of this book is Bridges Across Every Divide. So I know that's um, a pretty major claim. It's pretty bold. But uh, we're going to make the case that in bridges communities across the U.S., there are uh, people coming from the left and right, people of all races, all sectors, and people from different uh, experiences, life experiences, and all forms of diversity show up in getting ahead of bridges. And um, it turns out that um, people that use our ideas are kind of rebuilding that sense of community that some of us really miss. Oh, it's all about relationships. And so having said that, uh, I'll let Gene say something in his own defense and then and then uh, jump into the topic. Well, I'll just simply say in my defense that Phil has been an absolute joy to work with on this whole project. He's been very patient with me, uh, and he is the interpreter for me of all things bridges and getting ahead and related topics. So it's, he's just been a joy to work with through this whole thing. It has been fun. Uh, we've got lots of stories to tell, but we'll probably just get on with the work, right, Gene? Uh, but those should wait for another day. So, uh, so this is what it's like to get out of poverty in the U.S. And what we find out is that it's uh, much harder than it seems. Poverty is very complex. It doesn't respond to slogans and and uh, bromides. And so we have to have a really comprehensive approach to uh, the work that we do. I don't know how much uh, all of you know about uh, bridges and related books, but let me give you a quick tour of the background. Uh, Ruby Payne wrote a book called A Framework for Understanding Poverty. It came out in the mid-90s. I was working the, in the addiction field and used her book to improve outcomes at our agency. And then we began using it in our community and we built sort of like a collaborative of organizations that used her, her work. Uh, Ruby found out about this and uh, asked me to write Bridges Out of Poverty with her and uh, Terry Ducey Smith, who worked with me at the time and who is now a national trainer and has co-authored a book on Bridges Ideas and Healthcare. Uh, we wrote Bridges Out of Poverty that first came out in 1999. I now think of that as the book for the middle class, people that run the institutions all different sectors use this book, uh, and, uh, and most of them li live pretty stable lives, if you take stability as sort of one definition of what it means to be middle class. Uh, shortly after that, um, in 02 or so, I uh, began working on Getting Ahead and Just Getting By World, which is a book that people in poverty use in groups of 12 with a facilitator, and I like to say the facilitator can never tell you what to do. Uh, there's no teaching going on. There's a whole lot of learning going on, and people end up coming out of getting ahead, uh, taking charge of their lives with a new future story uh, and smart goals. And uh, we we want people who are in poverty to be at the planning and decision-making tables as we move forward in our communities to build uh, communities where everyone can live well. 
uh, Bridges to Sustainable Communities, is a collection of papers that turns out to be pretty uh, handy for executive directors, uh, legislators, and people that don't want to come to a whole day workshop on bridges and want the, the information uh, in three hours, you know. So, uh, so now these three books create a common language across, uh, the, the uh, I guess you would say, economic landscape. Now, 20 years ago, and since then, I've been resisting the idea of dealing with, I guess, policy, because I was afraid that bridges in our communities would get branded to the left or the right, and we didn't want that to happen. Well, uh, running into Dean was a, a wonderful thing for us all because he introduced us to uh, how to work with legislators. And we ended up here in Ohio uh, through his work and his connections, getting $11.5 million put into 21 counties to build uh, collaboratives that are really basically uh, based on bridges. And so that was a big boost for those counties. And, uh, and it was then that I asked Gene, well, you know, we ought to write a book about this experience. So that's where uh, this all came about. It's our hope that uh, today you'll be inspired to buy the book, you'll read the book, and then come back next month. We will do a follow-up to this webinar that goes deep, uh, deeper into how to use our tools on how to get policy passed. So here's our vision. Uh, Bridges brings people together from all classes, races, sectors, and political persuasions to address all the causes of poverty and build communities where everybody can live well. And again, this sounds uh, so you know, out of reach. It turns out to be true. It is a reality. And so our story here today is to kind of explain uh, how that happens. Now, we've been at this for a while, as I said, uh, 20 years or so. Our work is being used in 47 states and six countries. And you can read this list of sectors that use our work. So just to quickly define uh, our books and how they're used, um, Getting Ahead is a specific curriculum. There's model fidelity, and it's, it has a beginning, middle, and an end, and it has to be done just so for it to really work. Bridges is a set of ideas. And when people take those ideas into these various sectors and use them, they're gonna get better outcomes. And that's what we're finding. And then they come together in those communities and go, well, since we're all sharing the same language across class and sectors, why don't we collaborate to do a better job at dealing with the complexities of poverty? You should know that studies have been done. Uh, Elizabeth Waller is, uh, is, manages four, on four campuses, the social work of Indiana University. Uh, the Gendras are research um, folks from Notre Dame and now on the East Coast. And they've done studies and the others you see there. These things are available on our website. But we want you to know the studies are being done and they're coming back um, looking really positive. And if any of you uh, want to get into this in a big way and you have people that want to do real research, uh, get in touch with us and we'll have a conversation with these players and, and create uh, more studies that, that uh, add up more and more towards the day when uh, getting ahead at least is seen as evidence-based. And then there are some studies you can see that are in progress right now. A word about our methodology. Uh, I wanna share some of our core constructs with you, but I wanna first say, tell you why this works. First of all, it is on the, uh, the laws of attraction. People come to Bridges workshops, and if they like it, uh, and it gets into their head, and they think, boy, this is a new way of thinking about poverty. My mind shift has taken place. I want to use this work. You can see that uh, we would want you to take ownership of the ideas, to apply them, to use them, and to innovate. This is an innovation model and then engage the people who are in poverty using uh, getting ahead, and you're on your way to joining a really wonderful learning community where we get together and exchange ideas all the time. So now, uh, these are some of the core constructs we want to share with you. And I guess one of the first things we want to say 
is that having an accurate understanding of, of poverty is the beginning. You don't, in your community, if you're trying to do something about poverty and there's 15 agencies and organizations that are involved in it and every one of them thinks about poverty in a different way, we're like that famous story about the elephant and the blind men. The blind men approach the elephant, everyone touches a different part of it and comes away with a different definition. So then you act differently on it. Well, here, this common language allows us to uh, go forward. And one thing we have to know is that we should be listening to people in poverty to find out what poverty is like in our particular community. And we also need to know that people in poverty are problem solvers. I think oftentimes, and if you look at policies that people design, in the back of their head, that the basic concept of what they think of people in poverty comes shooting out into, into a policy. And oftentimes people think that people in poverty are the problem. And we don't see it that way. We see people in poverty as problem solvers. So you see that woman laying in bed there? It's 4 a.m. This is a, a mental model of my life now done by a woman in, uh, in uh, Quakertown, Pennsylvania. It's 4 a.m. If you look above her at about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, the clock is little legs are running. You know, you can imagine the alarm going off and she's getting up in this job one, job two, job three, kids, bills, car repairs. And the car is not working. And the big, huge word stress across the top of it. Perfect description of what poverty is like for her and for many other people. So we take that information and so does the person who's getting ahead. And they, they take that as a foundational piece and then they analyze it. Now we also create a mental model of what poverty is like in the community. And this happens in getting ahead too. So now in every community where Bridges is, if you have a getting ahead group working and many of them, you know, so there are some cities with hundreds of getting ahead graduates in them, they are defining what poverty is like in that particular community. And it's gonna look different no matter where you are. So we don't have a single solution that we go, here's what poverty is. No, it has to come from local experts, the people who are getting ahead. So we use these analytical terms to decode all the rich stories and experience that people throw on the page. And so we are looking at poverty and we're going, it's a concrete world instead of an abstract world. It's unstable instead of stable. People are problem solvers, but they're solving the same problems again and again. People are living in what we call the tyranny of the moment, where the tyranny, the moment rules, and you lose track of all the other things okay. around just to get through the day to solve the problems that you have to face. These are just some of the tools. So the tyranny of the moment, I just step aside and, and mention this to you, is that individuals, we can understand a person in poverty who's in this tunnel. Imagine, you know, they're in, in their car breaks down and they have to fix it right away. Now, a person in poverty isn't going to call AAA. They're going to call Uncle Ray. And so they spend all day with Uncle Ray getting that car back to their place, getting parts, getting it fixed. And that's all concrete and all dominating your time. That's the tyranny of the moment. And when that happens, you see that people pass up on education. They live paycheck to paycheck. The, the flow of money is never even for people at the bottom. They pawn their valuables. They pass up health care. They don't do prevention. They work harder. They work under the table. They take on more uh, part-time jobs with you know shifts that don't co coordinate. And so you see why someone in poverty would be in that kind of tyranny of the moment. And this is a big leap. But if you think about it, you probably have seen an institution in the tyranny of the moment too, and perhaps a community. And in those institutions and communities, we behave the same way. I love to show this to people because sometimes we look at people in poverty and go, what's wrong with them, you know? Well, here we are. If you're in the institutions, you're living grant to grant. You're in the communities, annual budget to annual budget. We cut professional development when we run out of money in our organizations. We cut research and development when we're in the community. And you can read the rest of these for yourself. So these are sort of some of the core ideas that we're trying to get across to folks. And we compare and contrast the three uh, class systems that we have growing up in the US. And poverty does change. There was a time back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s when we had sort of this golden age of the middle class for white people, just saying. 
and we, we knew each other. We lived on the same streets with each other. And and now, given the income inequality and wealth inequality, the wealthy folks that are driven by connections, they're living at gated communities, golf courses, and out of sight down long driveways. The middle class, driven by achievement and work, are clustered around the best schools. And then a, a mental model of poverty that's driven by relationships and survival. So these things have grown up since the 70s and are essentially getting worse, separating us from each other. So you can imagine the three books I mentioned to you, speaking to each one of the economic classes and giving them a way to understand each other and themselves. So you do your own analysis of how you got where you are. How did you get to be middle class? What was your family history? And you do the analysis and you talk about uh, how others live. And then from this, you can learn the hidden rules of class. And next thing you know, judgmentalness can turn into understanding. People can talk to each other again. So these are just some of the core constructs given to you at blinding feet. Now, here is our definition of poverty. And this is one thing we really have to thank Ruby Payne for, because she is uh, the one who defined poverty as more than just income. And if you think in America, it's all about income. Income is the defining and the only thing that defines poverty. So the only answer to poverty is income. Well, we look at income. Yeah, it's the first thing you can see there. But we talk about emotional competence. We talk about your education under mental, your social capital, your physical well-being and the rest. So 11 things add up to a high quality of life, to a stable life that makes it possible for you to do to act on many things. You just don't have to act on a job. You can start by acting on your physical well-being so you can get a job or you can act on going to school so you can get a job. So these are interplay with each other. And so if your definition of poverty is the degree to which you don't have these, the answer is at the individual level, build resources. At the institutional level, build them. At the community level, build them. Pass policies that help people build them. And then we do, we do go through an exercise in getting ahead where we analyze which resources are about just getting by and which resources are about getting ahead. And this is when people discover that Habitat for Humanity under a financial resource is a getting ahead resource because it's a wealth creating mechanism. Eight years after building it, you can sell it. It's an asset, right? Uh, subsidized housing under financial is a wonderful thing to have. If you're in a low-wage situation, having your, your housing capped at 30 or 35% is a wonderful thing. But if you make too much money, you lose it, and you're back at the end of a two-year wait to get back in subsidized housing. So it's a getting-by resource. So in getting ahead, people analyze these things so that they can intentionally put their focus on building resources. Now, we always address things through three lenses. No, four. One. What can the individual do? Two, what can the institution do to make things better in every way? What can the community do around building resources? What can funders do around it? What policies need to be done to make resources the defining uh, issue, the thing we can all work on? So we also then take our core concepts and we begin thinking about how would you determine if a policy had any value? How do you know a good policy from a bad policy? And so I'm just going to mention a couple of these. And when you come back, we'll take you through these and actually take a case study and show you how all these get used really carefully. But just from what I've said earlier, look at the top left side, mental models of class. One question is, does this policy stabilize or destabilize life? Poverty is just hassles, all day long hassles, things that just break down right and left. How unstable is it? Does this policy help stabilize or does it destabilize daily life? The hidden rules of class. Does this improve or worsen interactions between the classes? What's it based on? What's your mindset? So these are just kind of tickling your fancy, I hope, but what's the difference between getting ahead and getting by, right? Uh, another one here is all classes to the planning and decision-making table. Who made the policy? Did you have people in poverty at the table? You see, in getting ahead, 
the invitation is, we see you as problem solvers. We need your help to design and implement new policies that make sense. We bring classes to the table. If we don't do that, you have people with a middle-class experience or experience of wealth trying to decide what's best for people who are in poverty. And policies get made at the institutional level. They get made at the community level, state level, and federal level. And so we have to look at these aspects of policy making. Here's a decision-making tree. Uh, not the details, but when we come back in August, we'll look at this. The individual might be able to solve the problem completely in such a way that it doesn't have to go any higher on the decision-making tree. But if, it, if the individual does everything they possibly can and they still can't get out of poverty, the barriers are still there, it means that changes have to be made. And if institutional changes don't take care of it totally, then you have to reach up to the community level to be able to address the barriers that people find on their journey out of poverty. You see, getting out of poverty is hard, right? We have a middle class that's stuck. Since the, since the 70s, the median family income hasn't gone up. The working class is struggling. Most of them are, are not able to save $500 for an emergency, and 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So here's a person in poverty. It has to get up higher than that to get into stability. So if you can't get it done at the community level, you're going to have to go to the state level. So this is a decision-making tree is how far up do we have to go to solve the problem? Here are the four causes of poverty. Uh, if you look at the top row, individual behavior, there's a lot of research on individual behavior choice and circumstances that has to do with causing poverty. This is where conservatives come from. On the right side, political economic structures, research on systemic issues where liberals come from. And what we have in America today is people from the left and right saying it's either or, we're right and you're wrong. And this is one of the great divides. Well, by looking at the data, the research, what we found is that they're both right, is that poverty is caused by the choices of the people in poverty and by political economic structures. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. And then we discovered what community you live in will determine how likely you are to be able to get out of poverty. Where you live matters. And this is largely done through studies on commuting zones and zip codes and so on. And then there's exploitation of people in poverty. The very poorest Americans get exploited to the last dime in their pocket, not only by the private sector, but even by our governments. Now, what we're saying is that you cannot focus on just one of these columns, you have to address all causes of poverty. And this means everyone has a common language. They all know this. And this means we don't settle for simplistic policy solutions. Now, here's another tool we have, basically going back to this one and saying, fill in the squares, right? And we don't have time to go through this right now, uh, but we will, when we get together, in August, so we really do hope that you hang with us to do that. Uh, in the end, here's our model. In the middle of this is a common language. Outside of this are the sectors that you guys belong to. If your bubble isn't on there, just add it. If you use the bridges work, you're gonna get better outcomes. Then the arrows between the sectors is, you're sitting at a table together exchanging best practices and helping uh, overcome barriers that your employees and your client's experience. And then your best practices come back into the middle of the bridges uh, circle and come out as policy making. So we have a way to take this learning community that we have in place to bring all classes, all races, all political persuasions together to address all causes of poverty. So that's our model. Now I wanna turn it over to Gene and he can tell you what we need to know because we really need to know how to get better at making policy. Gene, you're up. Well, thank you, Phil. Well, in any case, so the only reason you want to listen to me is after I left the Ohio House, I still managed to pass 10 bills in eight years. And I did so here in Ohio uh, without a PAC, and Ohio is a let's make a deal state. Uh, it's a pay to play state. And um, this goes into some of the uh, methodologies that uh, we used for, in order to get that to happen. It's all about leverage. 
And as Archimedes said, if you give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum strong enough, I can move the earth. And on a certain Monday, certain Tuesday, following the first Monday in November, we all can pull levers at the voting um, uh, booth. But this is how to give you even longer levers than what you get at the voting booth. Um, so how do you get more leverage? You can be Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, or Mike Bloomberg. You can play win the lottery. But if you do so, remember, 70% of those people go broke. You can play the NFL, the NBA, but you're still going to go broke. The long-term solution for this, as we believe, is to develop relationships over lunch, coffee. And here I want to give you an adaptation from Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. This is thinking slow. This is an algorithm you can use to determine if you are being effective in your advocacy. It's numerically based, and so there's no real judgment then going on, except you are recording how, how, how you are doing based upon your people plus your impact plus your experience equals your effectiveness at advocacy. So, is your advocacy sufficient? It's your people score first. Number of regions in the state or city helped by your idea. Okay, has it is it helping the majority of the various regions in your state or city? And we just go on down through this. You'll find all this on page 141 of the book Bridges Across Every Divide. Okay, um, your experience score. It's about public speaking, uh, the number of times you've testified on your legislation. And we give you a lot of helpful hints in the book about how to testify. For example, you put your testimony in a 16-point font. Why? Because most members are getting to be of a certain age, and they don't want to be reminded to put on their cheating glasses in order to read stuff. Okay? It does not look good when someone takes their photo. So 16-point font. But you can see there we go through how you can go ahead and get, get – you know, things you should judge yourself for for your experience. Um, your impact score, okay? Funding or policy areas that your idea will impact. Select all that apply and multiply by three. Once again, you got to remember, can you go across the various silos that you find in public policy? The only place we should have silos in America is on our farms. Mm -hmm. I live in Ohio. <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, is your efficacy su su sufficient? Um, your experience score, okay? Uh, this is the number of times, for example, that you've organized on-site meetings with officials. And the key thing about meeting with officials is you want to meet with them while they're still relatively, should we say, young and inexperienced. They've just started out on, on doing politics because they will move up the food chain. And in politics, there's this great phrase, is, who did you go to kindergarten with? And if you can establish a relationship early and they move up the food chain, you can continue on. Just because they may be a city council person right now who's afraid of being eaten by plankton doesn't mean that someday they may not move on up. And by the way, same thing applies. You want to be nice to all staff people because, let's face it, that's where Speaker of the, of the U.S. House, Paul Ryan, got his start was as a lowly intern over at Jack Kemp's organization. Okay. Oh, and one more thing I forgot to mention, um, that you need to do a um, uh, briefing book for your elected officials and or for candidates. If you are a agency, there are ways you can do it that do not get you in trouble um, because it's just how you, how you present it and how you phrase it. And if you are a nonprofit or a think tank, you can also do one for candidates, and, uh, but we'll walk you through that one more. Okay. As you can see there, if you get a good score of above 100, heck, you can you can start doing webinars. Okay. But you want to pay attention to the data and use the data to get your ducks in a row. <laughs> and as you can see, this is now ducks in a row. Uh, how you did this uh, is um, you get two feed buckets way at the top of the screen. You can take the ducks anywhere you want. Now, I'm going to be using some humor here. Okay. Um, and this is percent of the chart which resembles Pac-Man. So there's some data that you want to use in your presentations, other ones you don't want to use. Here's another piece of information that's helped that's, that is, uh, I think, interesting, but you probably don't want to use, which is I hit, hit a buck. Um, mm -hmm. Here's the reason why 
um, I'm using humor because later on some of these slides will be very, very, very frankly depressing uh, and scary. And uh, the reason that you I'm using the humor now is to kind of um, even it out a little bit, if you will. But if you want to convince people of a certain um, um, uh, methodology, a data point, you really want to, unfortunately, what research indicates is scaring them is a very effective means. Okay? All right. So here are the things that Meatloaf would do for love. He, As you can see, he would do anything, but he would not do that. Okay? Um, so that is a... Yeah, I hear people... Uh, by the way, whatever you do, don't respond a whole lot of LLLs back on the chat thing. It'll just overwhelm it. All right. Um, here's something else. You got to remember the first rule of Dunning-Kruger Club is you do not know in your Dunning-Kruger Club. Uh, if you look over to the to the left-hand side of it, you can see confidence and you have no experience. Folks, this is my first time doing this type of webinar, and you can see what happens when you have high confidence but um, no real experience. Okay, And as you keep on going through with time, you end up with um, more ex – uh, you get more experience, but you end up with less confidence. Okay? And we're trying to advance the slide. Yeah. Okay, and there we are. So uh, when you first start off with this, I was once blind, but now I can see. In case you're wondering, uh, when it comes to bridges and all things bridges, I'm down at the bottom of the curve. And um, if you go up to the right-hand uh, curve, when you see the expert, there's only really two things that uh, I would say I'm an expert in. One of them is utility law and economics, and the other one is politics. And that's what we're now going to get into a little bit more of here. Okay. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a phenomena where an individual is too incompetent to understand their own incompetence. So how to vaccinate yourself against Dunning-Kruger when it comes to politics and moving policy? Read Bridges Across Every Divide. What is the goal of the book? To prove Henry Adams wrong. He was a grandson and great-grandson of U.S. presidents. He said, politics is the systematic organization of our hatreds. Now, he was born in 1838, and for him, the Civil War was the defined issue of his life. But we reject that, and we show you a proven path to organize and leverage based on friendships or relationships across the class, race, and political divides in order to solve the seemingly intractable problems of the day, such as poverty. And why are we in such a hurry to prove him wrong? Because we have always used manufacturing to help the unskilled or low-skilled working poor to pull themselves up to the middle class, and if not for themselves, at least often for their children. And we are trying to turn the strip of state around before the storm hits. And what is that storm that's about ready to hit us? Automation. By 2030, 47% of all jobs will be gone. Now, I've seen estimates that go from 17%, 34%. I've seen some up in the high 60s. Okay, Research is very emphatic, though. There's going to be a continuing erosion of the low-skilled and no-skilled jobs. And here's a quote from Alexei de Tocqueville. Uh, we used the Tocqueville as a guiding light for us in this book, so to speak. He wrote his book in the early 1830s, and we found it to be strangely prophetic for the times we're in right now. It would seem as if the rulers of our time sought only to use men in order to make things great. I wish they would try a little more to make great men, that they would set less value on the work and more upon the work man. Okay? So here's the first example. Here's the first slide we got put up. I, I love the Federal Reserve out of St. Louis. Federal gross domestic product per capita. Here, let me give you a way to sum this up in a very easy manner. In 1919, it took the average worker 80 minutes of work to afford a dozen eggs. 80 minutes of labor would buy you a dozen eggs in 1919. Now, it's six minutes. Basically, it's a bathroom break. And this is just one example of how much richer 
we have become. Um, most, many of you on the call drove to d drive, drive a car that gives you a higher standard of living than what you enjoyed in the house in which you were raised. Leather seats, heated leather seats, cooled leather seats, the same size TV I had growing up, but this one now comes in color. Okay. But at the same time, wages have simply not kept up with their productivity. As this slide indicates here from EPI, you know, it, productivity is skyrocketing, but hourly compensation has remained vaguely flat. Okay. Percentage of all employees engaged in manufacturing. Okay. You should be very afraid when you read this, and you need to have your uh, folks that you work with also look at this slide. This is from the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. Okay. And you can look and see percentage of all employees engaged in manufacturing. This makes it even that much more difficult and makes this work so much more important to do in order to get people to help them move up to the middle class. Okay. A number of all employees engaged in manufacturing. And as you can see, you know, it's, it had a huge spike, of course, during World War II. And but then it's been in a, in a general decline, especially since the year 2000. By the way, here's a very important data point to remember. Oh, in America right now, we actually make more steel than we did in 1980. It's just that we do so with a fraction of the same number of workers. OK, uh, history seldom repeats, but often rhymes. What you're seeing now, this graph is basically if you have a non-routine job that is heavily cognitive thinking based your jobs your job opportunities are going to increase in the future if they're non-routine and your manual or routine manual it's going to be much more difficult for you uh, if you have high math skills and high social skills the future looks bright if you have low math skills and low social skills so basically if you're laboring alone without a lot of cognitive work this, the future does not look good. You see why I'm in a state of panic over this. Manufacturers are posting jobs but not filling them. And as you can see, this, this started off here. We were in pretty decent shape in 2009. Okay, uh, This comes from the good folks at 538. But um, the of, number of openings and the hires have now gone completely separated. And this, the only thing I've seen is how uh, the bridges across um, bridges across out of bridges out of poverty work and the getting ahead work can help us fill that gap. But we need to start working on it now before that automation tsunami hits. Okay. And here's another frightening graph. Once again, scare. I hate to scare you, but this is what the data, this is what the research indicates is effective. Share of employment in new companies has declined since 1977. Doesn't matter who's in the White House, doesn't matter who's in your governor's mansion, doesn't matter who's controlling Congress, the trend is down. So we need to begin to work very hard and move very fast. So as Kurt Vonnegut said, the door to hell is locked from the inside. We need to unlock that door, and you need to decide for yourself to unlock that door. And how do you do so? You work with people who are different than you. And what happens if you stick into your narrow lanes and do not meet with people not like you and do not understand how to compromise and begin to compromise? Historian Shelby Foote tells Civil War happened because we failed to do the one thing which we really have a genius for in this country, which is compromise. So, how do we fix this before it gets too, par too far? This is not the republic the founders are looking for. We do not know our elected officials. We are self-sorted by education, class, and race. 1976, half of the counties in America were landslide counties, where Ford or Carter won by 20 points or more. 2016, it's now three-fifths. So we no longer know people different than ourselves. The bank president does not know the janitor on a casual basis, does not live in the same town. The kids do not attend the same school. There's no soft social capital left. Is there a different way to, for everybody to meet? I just remember this. The AHA process will be to help you. Bridges Across Every Divide has complete guidelines. You can ask me about helping. And if everyone does a little, no one has to do a lot. And you can be the anchor for the work in your community.
And now, Phil. All right. Thank you, Gene. Uh, it always scares me to to hear you do that. Uh, the, so we just ran across this article that came out on, on July 3rd. The, our, our idea is don't panic. Solutions have to come from the bottom up. And what we're saying in Bridges Across Every Divide is that it's a bottom-up process. You're listening to people who are coming out of getting ahead. You're using this work locally. You come across barriers. You find out what level of solution you need. You use Gene's ideas to make connections and become more skillful working with, working with, with your uh, elected officials. And we can make policy from the bottom up. In Ohio, there are 88 counties. 60 of them use the Bridges work. 30 of them really well, 10 of them just wonderfully, right? In Oklahoma, there's 77 counties, 17 use uh, bridges, and New York, Pennsylvania, all in the same mode. There seems to be feedback. We can't do anything about it. This is, I, I hope you're not hearing it. The, uh, the idea is that, that we think it's time. And we think it's necessary. You know, you've heard Gene talk and, and how frightening all that data is. And we know how divisive our society is. But there is a softer way. There is our way of bringing people together to solve these problems. We just have to use it. So um, here we are. So uh, where to buy the book? Our suggestion is that you buy the book and read it before we get together on uh when we'll take, then you will have you know, digested a good bit of this, and then we can go through and take a case study and talk about how these things all get put together and how it would be possible for uh, all of us to collectively begin to move the dial. So that's that's our uh, hope that you'll come back and, uh, and, and uh, be part of the second uh, uh, webinar with us. Now, we have a few minutes left, uh, 15 in fact, for uh, questions, so you can put them in the chat. And Ruth, I don't know if we're gonna open up the mics for people or how we wanna do this. So I kind of leave that with you, but. Yeah, we're not gonna open the mics. We'll just stay with chat. Stay with chat, um, okay. Kelly yeah. is asking, why are the jobs not being filled? Is it the lack of labor pool or the qualified labor pool? Well, Gene, why don't you take that? I think that what you're seeing here is, in my opinion, it's the, um, uh, culture, it, it's, it, it affected as some cultural invitations against getting uh, to the next level. Um, I attended a workforce um, he, hearing in Eastern Ohio uh, back in September of 2015, uh, and there were 10 witnesses from that community. About the third one in, uh, during the questions and answers, she made the observation that we need to bring back the good old days where you did not even need a high school diploma in order to afford enough money, have enough money to afford a house, a car, a boat, and a camper. And the crowd of about 100 people all broke out into raucous applause. And I'm sitting there just poleaxed because I'm thinking we're half, you know, half an hour down the road from Pittsburgh where Richard Forder wrote his Rise of the Creative Class. Okay. Um, and there were two more witnesses during that same presentation or 10 witnesses at all. But the last one was the community leader and he was pounding the podium in fury that you needed more than a high school diploma in order to provide for a house, a car, a boat, and a camper. They all use the same phrase. What we have to do is get through and break through that um, preconceived idea that we need to, it can, that, a low skilled, no skilled jobs will provide, and we and everybody was sitting there from the development community just stunned at this. But the response has been nobody has been talking about that meeting. I I'd like to uh, pitch in an idea here too, and I think uh, it's interesting that Ruth Weirich is on this call because she's written a book called Workplace Stability, and uh, she could she's done webinars webinars of her own, but. Uh, using Bridges constructs, uh, we're, we're able to help employers improve their retention rate. So sometimes people get hired, but people don't stay. And somewhere in the mix, this retention rate thing becomes a factor. And using Bridges constructs, you know, a webinar for another day, 
we're able to improve the retention rates and have people stay longer. And I think somehow that's going to play into this idea of who gets hired. There's less hiring. Well, now there's people that might not have been able to keep a job but can because they're using some of our ideas. I think that might fit in here someplace. So the next question is, how do we get community leaders to buy in? Well, this is all through attraction. And if you haven't had Bridges trainers uh, or national trainers or uh, come by to do some trainings, it all starts with just the change of mindset and get as many people in the room to hear that the uh, national trainers or certified trainers and uh, make sure you collect information at the end of the day. So every single person who comes and likes it leaves behind their contact information and the kind of work they do and the interest they have so that you don't lose track of a single person that likes it. And then you start applying the ideas where you are, find out that it's working for you and then learn from the learning communities and, and the sector work that we have available for you so you can get off the ground faster and don't spend years getting where we are today. It's, we can move a community from zero to 60 very, uh, very much faster than we could. So it's about attraction. Make sure people hear the ideas and everyone that likes it gets engaged in it. Some communities have had great success with judges being the main entree point. Um, and other business, other times business leaders. One of the things I find appealing about this is that it's very organic, and it's just where it seeks it seeks its openings where bridges seeks its openings wherever it can, however it can. Um, there are a couple questions here that fit together. What jobs should we prepare our students for? Uh, in the future, and how do we build those relationships with business um, when there's favoritism within departments there of to getting people hired? But let's start with what jobs should we prepare our students for? Probably more than anything else, just to prepare them to change careers and to be uh, capable and adaptable for changing jobs. In the late 90s, I was advising every young person I mentored. I said, hey, look at communications. Well, then in the 2000s, communications were one of the first things that people were, were axing then in the uh, large corporations. Um, it's, it's One of the things we know about this new economy we're, we're getting towards is, is that it's almost impossible to say, what will be the things of the future, what will not be the things of the future. But uh, I guess I'd say a mindset of flexibility. I mean, I started off, I, I started off as a uh, studying eth, uh, uh, animal behavior, got into farming, got into politics, got into smart growth, uh, utility law, um, now poverty, uh, you know, so um, uh, you just, don't, and now I've written a book. And uh, so you just got to keep your you don't spend too much of your time staring at the door. And that's right ahead of you that you want to open up and walk through. There may be other doors around to um, uh, uh, that you may want to walk through. And I just saw a question pop up. Am I saying that people should be able to support themselves only a high school degree? I'm not, you know, get themselves a house, bar, a house, a boat, a car and a camper. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that our problem is, is that there are people who are still hoping for those days to come back. Yet what every indication I've seen, every study is, is that you're going to need a, lots of additional training and the willingness to accept that additional training. I would like to, I'd like to add something here, uh, Ruth, and that is that uh, in getting ahead, we don't make the argument for change for the investigators. They make their own argument for change. Um, we aren't telling them what to do. And in the R rules, which is written for young people, they get to investigate what we're talking about here today. And if they're exposed to these uh, issues that we've raised and that exist as realities, if they get a chance to learn all that, they, they don't need to be told, you know, they can figure this out. And I think what's missing is this idea that we keep wanting to tell people what to do. We don't lay out everything there for them to kind of investigate it, talk about it, make it relevant to yourself and make your own argument for change. And then all of the things that are out there that are available in our cities make more sense to somebody. 
uh, Gene has this famous thing. Uh, what's your line about the rock in the water? Yeah, um, telling people what to do is like pouring water over a rock. It looks wet, but nothing ever soaks in. So I think these two books, Getting Ahead and The R Rules, are where people make that case for themselves. Um, Katie from uh, Waco, it talks a little bit about the hourly wage uh, that employers are paying that continues to hold individuals in poverty. Phil, um, yes, we want all employers to pay a livable wage, but would you talk just a little bit about the employer resource network model? Sure. Uh, some of the innovations that have gone on are the kind of things you could uh, would just never imagine could happen, but employer resource networks are uh, think of a nonprofit sitting in the middle of five, six uh, different for-profit entities or big nonprofits like hospitals where they have trouble with retention rates. And um, the wages may not be the best, but people are living in a very unstable environment. So with the bridges constructs and with the people in the business sector using Ruth's book to understand these issues and have a common language and people that are uh, coming into the workplace using the bridges work and having a common language, they're able to uh, deal with all those things that make life so unstable that they can stabilize the environment for the low-wage employees. Small-dollar loans is a wonderful version of that. Instead of going to the payday lender, you can get a loan up to, for up to $1,000 that you pay back at 16%. And in Toledo, Ohio, uh, there have been, um, what, a thousand uh, people that have used it and close to a million dollars in loans and 100% paybacks. Uh, the idea being that all that stability leads to uh, someone who's employed over time and can climb the ladder and, and earn better wages because they've been there for a while and they feel like they belong. They're engaged at work. So some of these things that, are, that have come up are just so exciting. Uh, that, you know, we hope that you'll catch the excitement, use this work in your sector and uh, become part of a collaborative, you know, in your community that can work on these issues. And in the book, we talk a lot about um, ESOPs, employee uh, stock ownership plans, along with worker cooperatives as a way to create a structural model that gives everybody who's employed there a better voice, a uh, share of the profits and a sense of um, Oh, truly, not a sense of ownership, a sense of belonging, but a actual ownership. And um, I think that that is another thing that communities may want to take a long, long look at. Um, you, the advantage to it is, is that if your community has a medium-sized company that's maybe the second, third generation, they're thinking about selling out to maybe uh, BlackRock uh, investors or Australia investors, Macquarie, or maybe the Chinese, instead convert it over to an ESOP, and then everything stays local. It helps avoid that massive groupthink you see going on in the corporate suites all across America. And remember, I studied animal behavior. I know flocking when I see it, and they <laughs> often flock the bad ideas. <sighs> Well, we thank you all for joining us here today. And um, and so we are going to um, end this call for today. And I did include the, the general page to register for the next webinar, although the direct link isn't there yet. And Jean and Phil will take this concept of bridges across every divide to a deeper level. So we hope that you will join that. So thank you for joining and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.